calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hello, and Happy New Year's Eve. Happy New Year's Eve, everybody. (laughs) I'm like looking into Keegan's future, looking at that pretty sparkly dress. You know, I'm going to go shopping and see if I can find something else, because I'm going to a prom situation. Um, okay. I'm going to prom this year. If that year. was floor length, that would be a perfect prom dress. I know, it really would be, but I had a hard time finding a floor length dress. I found one that was way too long, and then oh. I was like, well, you can't go wrong with sparkles on New Year's Eve. No. But I'm going to go see if I can find something longer. I mean, longer. in this day and age, prom is anything. I mean, it really is. Yeah, you can wear anything to prom. So, you do you, boo. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Always. For sure. For sure. So, this week we're going to be doing just regular old feminist faves, which was something that I asked specifically to do because I've recently... So, I'm going to be talking about Lucia Ball this yes. week. I've recently started watching I Love Lucy again. I She's love that show. like one of everybody's favorite female comedians, you know? And I feel like it would... I want to know more about her. I want to learn more about her. I figured anybody who's listening who knows a little bit but doesn't know a lot would maybe like to learn more about her, too. So, luckily, Keegan was like, sure. Yeah. I'm down. Let's do it. You're down? Should <laughs> yeah. we start? Should I yeah. do it? Jump right into it? Jump okay, right cool. in. All right. So, first of all, when I was little, I thought it was Lucy O'Ball. Lucy O'Ball. Lucy O'Ball. So um, young Madigan didn't have very good hearing. Old Madigan doesn't either. So I was, like, older than I care to admit, like, when I realized that her name was Lucy O'Ball. <laughs> it's still, like, I still want to say Lucy O'Ball sometimes. It's weird. I think it's kind of cute. It's Lu- kind of cute. Lu- Lucio. 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 Lu- but it was, like, I think I thought of it more like O apostrophe ball. Like, O-ball. Oh, like her last name is yeah, O-ball. Yeah, like Lucy O'Ball. Like she's, like, Irish or something. I don't know. Okay. She's got red hair. It could happen. She could be. I mean, not naturally. I was going to say, she's not a natural <laughs> redhead, but... Yeah, so, and we'll get to that. All right. So, Lucille Desiree Ball was born in Jamestown, New York on August 6, 1911. She was the daughter of Henry Durrell Ball and Desiree, or Dee Dee, Evelyn Ball. Her family at the time lived in uh, Wyandotte, Dote, Michigan. So, I don't really know why they were in Jamestown for her birth, but apparently they lived there at the time. Lucy would claim that she was born in Montana, which is where her grandparents lived. 
Magazines also often misreported this as well, claiming that Montana was a more romantic place for her birth than New York and repeated a fantasy of a Western childhood. Okay. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> that whole thing from like the 1930s where they're like, we're going to manufacture yeah, your personality. Yeah, 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 exactly. So at the age of three, Lucille's father died of typhoid fever. And Dee Dee was pregnant with Lucy's younger brother, Frederick, at the time. So Lucy remembers little from that day, but has a vivid memory of a bird being trapped in the house, which she believed caused her caused her ornithophobia. What's which that? I believe is a fear of birds. Oh, okay. So, right? I mean, I could actually totally understand being afraid of birds. They're kind of scary. And then don't watch uh, birds. I mean, I've seen the birds... But I remember being a kid, specifically, it was, like, big birds. So geese, geese are scary. Emus are very scary. Emus and ostriches. <laughs> Emus are big. I don't blame huge. you for that. They're large. Emus it's... and ostriches are both big, and they are relentless. If yeah. you ever get close to them, yeah. they will chase you down. I was going up with some geese today. My mom, my mom like, thinks she's Dr. Doolittle or something. She'll just go up to any animal. We were at Hollywood Cemetery, and they have, like, the geese in the pond. I, too, like, will go up to Hello, any little animal. birdie. I understand that. Oh, my that. God, there were these cats, Keegan, that you would have uh, loved. I would duck. freak out. Yeah. There was a black cat who actually came out and got really close to me and then ran away because I was like, you know? Basically, any cat is that cat for me. Yeah. All cats are that cat for me. Yeah. I've, I told Anthony multiple times, I'm like, listen, I it's amazing I didn't get kidnapped as a kid because it would have been so easy. <laughs> Here's well, honestly, the Honestly, even as an adult, if somebody was just like, hey, I have a cardboard box full of kittens in my truck. <laughs> Did you like to come see them? I'd be like, yes, I would like to go see those yes, kittens. Yes, I would. I will willingly go into your dark uh, Where are the kittens? And then Where I'm kidnapped. The yeah. Oh, yeah. God. I hope that never happens to you. Me too. All right. I just shared my secret about yeah, kidnapping. Jesus Christ. With the whole world. Oy. So after the death of her father, they returned to New York. The Ball children were raised by their mother and their maternal grandparents. In 1919, Dee Dee married Edward Peterson, and while they looked for work in another city, Peterson's parents would watch the ball children. Her step-grandparents were puritanical Swedish, which I've never heard of. Is that a religion? I don't know. How could... Okay. They were puritanical and they were Swedish. Okay, as separate things. I don't know, but it just said puritanical Swedish. I'm just reading you what I read. All right. I'm just giving you the straight If you know here. the answer to this, please let us know, because that is confusing. Yeah, it's very confusing. But anyways, they banished all the mirrors in the house except for one above the bathroom sink. Listen, so- <laughs> listen, people listening, you will fuck up your children if you do some weird shit like this. <laughs> Don't do that. Really? I didn't know. Listen, why... How could you ever think that your kids are going to come out like normal, well-adjusted people when you do stuff like that? I mean, it's just mirrors, but still it is It's weird. weird. Well, this is what fucked her up. So she was caught admiring herself in one of the mirrors, and they were like... She, they severely chastised her well, for that, being vain. Well, that's what I mean. Be- yeah. Because that's why they got rid of the mirrors. Yeah. It's not about not having mirrors. It's yeah. about the message you're sending by being like, we can't have any mirrors because we don't trust you not to look at yourself. Or yeah. if you do, that says something bad about your personality. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. whatever. Very weird. But that greatly affected her. So Peterson was a Shriner, which I had to look up, which is apparently a branch of Freemasonry. I know about the Shriners. You know about the Shriners? Yeah. Can you tell me about the Shriners? I mean, a little bit. We had a we have a Shriners mosque in Springfield, which is very weird because it is in no way affiliated with the Muslim religion, to my knowledge. It looks like a mosque, but um, 
it is for the Shriners. I did know it was a branch of Freemasonry. And really, other than that, all I know is that it's like a bunch of old white guys that wear little hats. Basically, it says... They consist of fraternal organizations that trace their origins to the local fraternities of stonemasons. It's weird. I don't know. Whatever. But anyways, that organization was needing female entertainers for a chorus line for their next show. And he encouraged 12-year-old Lucy to audition. Feels like a trap, especially when you're 12. (laughs) The 12-year-old chorus line for a bunch of old guys. I mean, it worked pretty well for her. I didn't read anything about sketchy shit, but there was probably sketchy shit. So on stage, she realized while performing, it was a great way to gain praise and recognition. She really liked the attention she got. Don't we all? Can you understand? That's everyone who starts out performing. Exactly. Like, that's my life story right there. In one sentence. Um, So her family suffered a lot of misfortune in 1927, and their house and furnishings were lost to settle financial legal judgment after a neighborhood boy was accidentally shot and paralyzed by someone target shooting in their yard under supervision of Paul's grandfather. So they moved back to James. Cool. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what? What? Okay, that's weird. So let's start getting into her career a little bit. So in 1925, at 14 years old, Lucy started dating this guy, Johnny DeVita. He was 21 years old, and he was like the Sounds like a gangster. He was the local hoodlum. (laughs) Johnny DeVita. That's definitely. He was the local hoodlum. He was 21. She was 14. Cool. Sketchy. Again. Cool, cool, cool. So, after a year of dating, her mom, Dee Dee, tried to separate the two, and Lucy was like, no. Dee Dee, where were you at the beginning of that year? Well, she already hated it, but she didn't want to, like, push her daughter further away, so she wasn't going to, like, put her foot down. But what she did, which is really smart, is that she kind of lured Lucy out of it with her love of show business. So, she arranged for Lucy, even though they didn't have a lot of money... She arranged for her to attend the Murray Anderson School for the Dramatic Arts in New York, and her fellow student was Betty Davis, which is cool. Okay, cool. So Lucy recalls her time in drama school by saying, all I learned in drama school was how to be frightened. Okay. I totally feel that. Not so much like, like, oh, I'm acting scared, but more like... Like, do you remember just feeling really drained after a lot of acting classes? Like, you did the the one-year conservatory, but I remember my first year especially being really emotionally draining after, like, Meisner classes and um, things like that. Yes. Well, I, I would argue that any good acting class is going to drain you emotionally yeah. because it's, it's an emotional mine. Like, you're supposed to be in there kind of pulling up old shit. Exactly. So, I can see... I don't think she means, like... I mean, she could mean physically frightened, but I mean, it definitely did. I lived alone. I was 18 years old, and I would leave some classes sometimes just being like, I don't want to be alone right now and just feeling not okay. I could see that. So her instructors did not think that she had a future in the business and did not hesitate to tell her to her face. So she was like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to do this shit because I love it. And in 1928, she began to work as an in-house model for Hattie Carnegie, who oriented Lucy to dye her hair blonde. Everybody was blonde at the time. Exactly. So, and this is what Lucy says about Hattie. She goes, Hattie taught me how to slouch properly in a $1,000 hand sequin dress and how to wear a $40,000 sable coat as as casually as a rabbit. (laughs) Her career was thriving when she became ill with rheumatoid arthritis and was unable to work for two years. But in 1932, she began working for Carnegie again and continued her pursuit of an acting career. She was also a Chesterfield cigarette girl. She was using the name Diane at one point, and she began getting chorus work on Broadway, but it didn't last very long. After an uncredited role as Goldwyn Girl in Roman Scandals, Ball moved to Hollywood. She had many small roles in the 30s as a contract player for RKO, including two 
real comedy shorts with the Three Stooges, and in a movie with the Marx Brothers. She was also one of the featured models in the Fred Astaire and Ginger Roberts film, Roberta. Rogers. She became... What did I say? Roberts. (laughs) (laughs) Ginger Rogers. (laughs) Also, did you know that Lucille Ball and Ginger Rogers are distant maternal cousins? Really? I could see that. Yep. So, in 1936, she went back to Broadway and got the lead role in Hey Diddle Diddle. She also auditioned for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. That would have been a very different movie, I feel like. (laughs) Yes, very different movie, but still cool. Um, She signed with MGM in the 40s, but never really achieved much there. She was known as the Queen of Bees, which is like the Queen of the Bee movies. Okay. You know? She definitely had a real Tara Reid of her time. Yeah, she she had a rough go of it for a little bit, trying to work her way up. So I love this. This was a fact I didn't know and got really excited over. So in 1938, Ball joined the cast of The Wonder Show with Jack Haley. Do you know who Jack Haley is? It sounds familiar. When a man's an empty kettle, he, should, he was the Tin Man. Okay, he was a Tin Man, and what's funny, uh, much much later down the road, her son dated Liza Minnelli. Okay, funny, huh? So seven, every- the seven, whatever that is, to Kevin Bacon, seven <laughs> degrees. You've never heard of oh, that? This, yeah, this isn't it six degrees of separation or whatever. Well, I thought it was seven degrees to Kevin Bacon. There was, like, a whole thing where everyone is just, like, seven degrees away from Kevin Kevin Bacon. Bacon. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in L.A. isn't everybody. Probably. You know, it's pretty crazy. But I thought that was cool. There's always something weird with The Wizard of Oz that comes into, like, everything that I ever research. (laughs) Um, She also began a really strong professional relationship with Gail Gordon doing this, who was, like, the announcer of the show. Uh, Lucy then was cast in an Arthur Freed Broadway musical hit, Dewberry Was a Lady. Do you know about Arthur Freed? I know the name. He's a son of a bitch, and I oh, hate him. great. He was the choreographer and director for a lot of Judy's most damaging movies, like, uh, emotionally damaging mm-hmm. movies. He worked her till she, like, fainted and had to be out of work for, like, a month when she did, um, what's the song? The movie, I can't remember, but the, uh, I've got rhythm, I've got the music, yeah. I've got sunshine. Um, for anything more. Well, I mean, to be honest, like, TBH, I think most Hollywood directors would do that now if they could. Yeah, she. this guy, though, was notorious for just being a dick. Like, a lot of them were dicks, but, like, they were, like, decent people where this guy was just, like, pure evil. You know what I mean? Yeah, I believe that. I also think that it takes a very certain personality type to become a director. Yeah. And a lot of them are egomaniacs. Like, I think... Well, he started as a choreographer, too. Yeah. Oh, and a lot of... If my experience with most choreographers is correct, Mm -hmm. them too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of a lot of perfectionism and a lot of egomania. Yeah. So in '48, this is kind of the start of I Love Lucy. She was cast as Liz Cooper, a wacky wife and my favorite husband for CBS Radio. (laughs) What a 1950s title! My My favorite husband. husband. (laughs) I love it. So the show was so successful that CBS wanted to produce it for television, and they wanted Lucy to do it. But she was like, on one condition, my husband, Desi Arnaz, is going to be my co-star. Hold on. When did she meet Desi? I'm going to go back. Okay. So I had to say that, and then I'm going to go back, and then I'm going to go back into the career. All right. You I see, see it. You see what I'm doing I here? I see it. You see it? Mm-hmm. You got me? Okay, cool. So she said that, and they're like, nuh-uh-uh, because they were like... 
there's no way the American public is going to accept this interracial couple, this guy from Cuba and this, like, redheaded woman. So I digress. They met in 1940. So this is eight years into them being together. They were filming the Rogers and Hart stage hit, Too Many Girls. Another great name for something. God. My favorite husband, Too Many Girls. Um, yeah, they- <laughs> could you tell society maybe didn't like women very much? Oh my like, god, that's crazy. Too many girls. <laughs> too many. But my favorite husband. <laughs> that should be what my favorite murder changes their show to. My too. favorite husband. It's all about Vince. Just stories about how wonderful Vince is all the time. So they eloped within the year. However, in 1944, Lucy had filed for divorce. They were not super happy all the time, but they reconciled. And being on the show together really did bring them back together. However, oh no, not yet. Not yet, however. Sorry. There's still happy times ahead. In 1951, Lucy gave birth to her first daughter, Lucy, but spelled L-U-C-I-E, Desiree Arnaz, and a year and a half later to Desiderio Alberto Arnaz IV. All or right. Desi Jr. Desi. Lucy so, and Desi. Lucy and Desi. They named their children after themselves. It's great. It's a very Hollywood thing. All right. So, like I said, CBS wasn't so thrilled about an interracial couple being portrayed on TV. And Lucy was adamant, if you want me, you're taking him as well. They were also unimpressed by the pilot episode, so Lucy and Desi went on the road with a vaudeville act in which Lucy played the zany housewife wanting to get into Arnaz's show. The tour was such a success that CBS put I Love Lucy on their lineup. The show not only made Lucy a star, but it also saved their marriage. Their marriage had been rough because of their crazy schedules, but mostly due to Desi's attractions to other women. Yeah, shocking. Shocking. But now they're working together all the time. She's like, he has no time for other women. I have an eye on you. Yeah, exactly. That's why she was really like, if you want me, you have to take Desi because I don't trust that motherfucker to stay home. I don't trust him if I'm working all day. Nuh-uh. So with the success of I Love Lucy, uh, she created a television dynasty and achieved several firsts. So this is kind of where like her like feminist spirit kind of comes in. Uh, she was the first woman to head a TV production company, Desi Lou. After their divorce, she bought out his share and became very actively engaged, a very actively engaged studio head. They were the first show to perform in front of a live studio audience with a number of cameras and distinct sets adjacent to each other. Do you want to know a fun fact? Yes. So my dad grew up um, half the time in Minnesota, but a lot of times in Los Feliz. And he was friends with somebody Los Feliz, California? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he lived in Pasadena and Los Feliz a lot growing up. So um, he had a friend who um, his dad worked on, like, TV sound stuff. And they, again, they were doing live studio audiences, which was very rare at the time, if not the first show to do so. And so he was like, do you want to go to this taping of the show or whatever? And my dad's like, yeah, sure, whatever. I guess. My dad was part of the original laugh track. That's cool. And they still use the original laugh track to this day. So That's every really time cool. they use a laugh track, he's like, do you hear me? Do you hear me? That's me right there. That's me. That's me. Yeah, I found that really interesting. You didn't know that my dad lived in L.A.? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. He used to go to Barbara Eden's house for Thanksgiving. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Also, do you want something crazy I just learned about today? Yes. My dad was the paper boy for the LaBianca house. Oh, after, shit. After the murders. After, but still, oh, okay. But, like, holy yeah. shit. Creepy, right? Yeah. Insane. So, anywho's, CBS was unhappy when Lucia was pregnant with her second child, insisting that a woman could not be, a pregnant woman could not be shown on television, nor could they use the word pregnant on the television. Scandal. After approval from several religious figures. 
The network allowed the pregnancy storyline, but insisted on using the word as expecting instead pregnancy. of pregnancy. Gross. Gross. It's not how we're all here or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> So this is really cool. So the episode aired on January 19th, 1953, with 44 million viewers watching. Uh, So Lucy Ricardo on the show welcomed little Ricky. In real life, on the same day, Ball delivered Desi Jr. So did she give birth on No, like the day that it aired. Oh, okay. Was the day that she actually gave birth. Amazing. Yeah, that's cute. Yeah. So. Kismet. Kismet. This is confusing to me, but this is what it said, so I'm going to say it. Maybe you can help me. So, because of time zone differences, CBS wanted Lucy and Desi to move to New York. They wanted them to, like, film to New York and then have the time slots be different, but I don't get why the time well, slots would be different. was it live? No, it wasn't live. I don't think so. So, that's why I'm confused, but... If it was live, that would make sense. Because right. in New York, you know, it would air earlier rather you know if they did it late in LA it would be too late to show in New York right and that's kind of what they were saying but it's like I don't get because it wasn't live I don't understand yeah then I don't understand but the reason that that's important because they wanted them to move to New York um that would mean a pay cut for some reason again don't know why sorry that I don't know it could be cost of living differences it could be like it's more expensive to live in New York but they only agreed to it um but Desi Lou would obtain all the rights to each episode once it aired Which was a big deal. So in 1957, CBS bought back the rights for a million dollars, which would be $8.73 million in today's terms, which gave Lucy and Desi their own down payment to purchase the former RKO studio, which they turned into Desi Lou Studios. Yeah, it's amazing. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. So a scene in which Lucy and Ricky practiced the tango evoked the longest recorded studio audience laugh in the history of the show. It was so long that the editor had to cut the section of the soundtrack in half. Wow. Crazy, right? So, during breaks in production, Lucy and Desi starred in two films together, including The Long, Long Trailer and Forever Darling. Um, Desi Lu produced several other popular shows, such as The Untouchables, Star Trek, and Mission Impossible. Wow! Didn't know it! Crazy, right? So, so the first um, Black White Kiss as well was on Star Trek. <gasps> That's right. Yeah. That's awesome. So the studio eventually sold in 1967 for $17 million, which would be $125 million today, and they merged it into Paramount Pictures. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I love it. I mean, there is something interesting. A lot of it was soups fucked up, and we'll have to get into that, but there is something interesting about um, really fascinating kind of almost like fairy tale like about the ways the studios worked back then and how oh, yeah. everything was kind of like interconnected like yeah, that was definitely. really well because cool. the studios had so much they power. owned everything which is what is so problematic about it but also something that is fantastical cool. about it from yeah. the outside yeah, yeah exactly so on may 4th 1960 desi and lucy divorced they remained friends until desi's death in 1986 and they often spoke fondly of each other it doesn't really go into... Listen, sometimes it just doesn't work out. Exactly. And honestly, like, that's the best and most mature way that you could take mm-hmm. care of that situation. It's like, you have kids together. Yep. Realize that you didn't work together. I mean, they were, they, their kids would be grown by then. But still, I mean, you have kids together. You want to yeah. get along. Like, I'm an adult, but I would still want my parents to get along and, and just be talk happy. to each other. Yeah, like, exactly. I, you know... But um, her divorce inspired her in, for a later television show where she played an unmarried woman, which I'm sure was also very unheard of at the time. Scandalous. Right? So after that, Lucy married Gary Morton, who was a borscht belt comic, 
which I like saying borscht. 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 Who was 13 years younger than her. Hey, girl. Hey, you well, get yours. I remember finding out how old Lucille Ball was whenever I Love Lucy started and being like, oh, because I didn't think she would, because she was like almost 40. Yeah. When she I Love Lucy started. She was born in 11, and it was 48, I think it said when it started, right? I don't know. Do some math for me. Well, okay. I think it was later than that that I Love Lucy started. Let me see. But, I mean, I could be wrong. But I remember hearing about it and being like, she was in her late 30s, I think, whenever I Love Lucy started. Which is late for your career to really, like... She was cast as... She was cast in My Favorite Husband in 48. Right. But I Love Lucy started in 51, it looks like. There you go. According this year to my IMDb. mom was born. Yeah, so uh, I Love Lucy started in 51. So, so that yeah, she would have been 40. 40. That's yeah. amazing. And doesn't that just make you feel better about yourself, too? It does, yeah. <laughs> it, it does make you feel like your traje- trajectory is yeah. uh, on on path. Yeah. So do you want to hear um, more interesting connections to my favorite Judy and Lucy? Yes. So Ball's close friends in the business. Oh, first, here's the quote that she said about um, her son. Uh, she, so her son was dating Patty Duke, and she was commenting on it, and she said, I miss Liza, but you cannot domesticate Liza. Yeah, that's so true. this must be how they met because Ball's close friends in the business were Vivian Poor Patty Vance. Duke, by the way. I know. Like, what if your boyfriend's mom <laughs> said that shit about you? Like, I, know. Like, I miss your ex girlfriend, yeah. but it's fine, I <laughs> but guess. It's fine. So Lucy was friends with Vivian Vance, of course, Judy Garland, and Southern. Ever and heard of her? Ever heard of this woman? <laughs> I saw her memorial today at the Hollywood Cemetery and literally was, like, dumbstruck for ten minutes. Um, Ann Southern, Ginger Roberts. Rogers. Oh. God damn it, Madigan. I caught myself as I was saying it. Okay, I need to get my eyes checked, though, because I, like, can't read. But I know it's Ginger, Ro- Ginger Rogers. I did the same thing with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the mini-episode. All right. Ginger Rogers. <laughs> Jack Benny, Barbara Pepper, Mary Wicks, and Mary Jane Croft, all except Garland, appeared on at least one of her various series. And she was also very good friends with another tie to my life, Barbara Eden. Oh, wow. I know. Aren't I so connected? It's oh, crazy. my gosh. Ah! Sorry, my sweaters me. are falling. They didn't like my humble brags. <laughs> so... In the 80s, Ball attempted to resurrect her tri- her TV career. She appeared in some made-for-TV dramas and a comeback show called Life with Lucy. It was canceled in less than two months into its run on ABC. In 1988, Ball was hospitalized after suffering a mild heart attack. Her last appearance was at the 1989 Academy Awards, one month before her death, in which she and fellow presenter Bob Hope were given standing ovations. Very cool. So, I'm going to talk and about... Bob Hope has an airport now. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my god, have you seen his uh, land in Chaluk Lake? Mm-mm. Well, I mean, maybe, inadvertently. I'm sure you have, it's ginormous. Yeah, I yeah. probably have then. It's crazy. Yeah, but for those of you who don't live in Los Angeles, there's a Bob Hope Airport, and it's bomb. It's the Burbank Airport, the Burbank Bob Hope Airport. I freaking love the Burbank Airport. It's so easy it's and wonderful best. and nice. Like, I will take multiple layovers to go to Burbank instead of LAX. Because you can literally, if your plane takes off from the Burbank, from the Bob Hope Airport at 12, you can get to the airport at 11.30 and still make your flight. Oh, for sure. <laughs> There's been one time that I got there where it was real, the line was really long and I was freaking out, but I still made it. So, all right, let's get into a little bit of her politics because some of this is a little murky to me, but I'm just going to read to you what I found. 
Ball registered to vote in 1936 and listed her party affiliation as communist. Okay. To sponsor the party candidate for California State Assembly in 1936, Ball signed a certificate saying... Certificate? Wow. Certificate. I understand. (laughs) Certificate saying, I am registered affiliated with the Communist Party. On September 4th, 1953, Ball met privately with HUAC investigator William A. Wheeler in Hollywood and gave him a sealed testimony. I bet she did. She stated... To avoid being blacklisted. I know. She stated that she had registered to vote as a communist or intended to vote in the Communist Party ticket in 1936 at her socialist grandfather's insistence. She stated she at no time intended to vote as a communist... Which is weird. Mm. But I think she's backpedaling. I think think she's absolutely backpedaling. In this day and age, it kind of means something different to be a communist than it did back in the day. Well, it's not... I don't even think that it necessarily meant anything different. I just think that the way that they... um, It was just McCarthyism. Yeah. It's just like the way that they went after those people. If you wanted to protect your McCarthyism... Wow. Yeah. If you wanted to protect... We are. If you wanted to protect your life, your career, your image... I mean, people lost their whole livelihoods by being communist. So it doesn't even mean that she wasn't one or, you know, Right. She didn't want to be perceived as such for the sake of her career, which I understand. So when all of this was happening, before an episode taping, Desi is quoted as saying, the only thing read about Lucy is her hair, and even that is not legitimate. <laughs> so true. I think that's kind of funny. That's true. In 1944, Ball was featured prominently among several stage and film stars at events in support of FDR's fundraising campaign for March of Dimes, and then went on to vote for Eisenhower in 52. Remind me of Eisenhower. I feel like he was a dick. Was he a dick? I feel like he was a dick, too, but as were most presidents at you that know, time. I can't remember who he ran against, Dwight yeah. D. Eisenhower. So when she passed away, her body was cremated, and the ashes were initially interred in the Forest Lawn Hollywood Hills Cemetery in Los Angeles. However, in 2002, her children moved her remains to the Hunt family plot at Lakeview Cemetery in Jamestown, New York, where her parents, Henry and Desiree Hunt Ball, and her grandparents are buried. On February 8th, 1960, Ball was awarded two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one at 6436 Hollywood Boulevard. Ball received many prestigious awards throughout her career, including some posthumously, such as the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President George H.W. Bush on July 6th, 1989, and the Women's International Center's Living Legacy Award. Ball appeared on the cover of TV Guide more than any other person. She appeared on 39 covers, including her first cover in 1953 with her baby son, Desi Arnaz Jr. TV Guide voted Lucille Ball as the greatest TV star of all time, and it later commemorated the 50th anniversary of I Love Lucy with eight collector's covers celebrating memorable scenes from the show. In another instance, it named I Love Lucy the second best television program in American history after Seinfeld. Oh, wow. Due to her support for the women's movement, Ball was indicted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 2001. That's amazing. So she was very much like, even if she was never a spoken, quote-unquote, feminist, she was definitely one of those women that was a trailblazer, uh, knew her worth, definitely. Right. And also knew that she needed to continue to proceed with what she loved to do, even if things kept kind of knocking her down. I know that she did a lot in terms of... um, for women in comedy. I know that she was kind of the first to do yeah. all of that stuff and to do a lot of that physical comedy yeah. that was very largely a well, male domain. Well, she worked with the, the Three Stooges and the Marx Brothers. She learned so much from those people, you right, know, and but, definitely brought it into a 
like, you can do this too kind of thing for right. women. Because even so, like, a lot of the time... Um, women who were in comedy at the time, it wasn't a lot of, like, physical comedy. You mm-hmm. weren't doing comedy the same way that the Three Stooges were doing comedy, her you know? Her faces and her physical her physical comedy are just unbelievable, and I love how timeless it is. Yeah. And like, she, watching these episodes, I'm legitimately laughing out loud. She was one of the first people to really demonstrate to me how difficult comedy is, because yeah. I think it's easy for people to look down on comedy, because you see largely the movies that get the accolades or the shows that get the accolades are dramatic shows. Um, and that's kind of what I fed into growing up as but an actor. But you go into any comedy or into any acting class and they're going to be like... Comedy's so comedy's hard. Comedy's hard. Because comedy's the hard. timing and everything yeah. else. It is hard for a lot of comedy actors to then turn into dramatic roles. But I would have to say that it would be easier to... I mean, look at Steve Carell. You know, he's such a comedian. Or any of them. Jim Carrey did it. Oh, my gosh. I mean, their dramatic portrayals are just amazing because they understand timing. They understand improv. There's so many of those things that are ingrained into them that when they get into dramatic roles, they do it so well. It's much easier for a comedian to do drama than it is for a dramatic actor to do comedy well. Yeah. I think. I would argue that. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. Thanks. Awesome. So that's Lucy O'Ball. Lucy O'Ball. (laughs) <laughs> my this little girl that I babysat when I was young, she was just a few years younger than me, but she would call Marilyn Monroe Marilyn Mineral. Marilyn Mineral. <laughs> she was mm. like five. Oh, oh, okay. Marilyn Mineral. Oh, that's cute. That was actually, super cute. that's super cute. Okay, who are you, you ready? talking about? I don't know. I am doing none other than the amazing Oprah Winfrey. <gasps> okay. <laughs> Oh, wait, Oprah! hold on. Do you watch Busy Tonight at all? Or the I haven't yet. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So she has an Oprah phone on the show, and Oprah called it, and it is the most beautiful. She literally just starts crying and That's everyone. Speak. That's the Oprah She's effect. Like, oh, my God, what? Are you kidding me? If I met Oprah, because recently, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but, like, recently she did go door-to-door for Stacey Abrams. Yeah. Can you imagine if... Oprah knocked on your door. I would shit. And then, and then my dog would shit. And then be very embarrassed. Yeah. Oprah <laughs> has this supernatural ability. Mm-hmm. It's it's very strange. It's yeah. very strange, um, but incredible. And she comes from such amazingly like humble beginnings. That uh, Tell me all it's, about her. It's I really know great. some, and I want to know more. Okay. So Oprah Gail Winfrey was born on January 29th. Wait, her middle name is Gail? Yes, and her best friend's Stop! name is Gail. I know! Yes. Uh, she was born on uh, January 29th, 1954, and um, her birth certificate actually reads or. Orpa, 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 Orpa is what her birth certificate reads. O R P A H, which is a biblical figure that was found in the Book of Ruth. Wait, but, so they meant to call her Orpa? Yes. Okay. But after people mispronounced her name her whole life, she was like, you know what? Just, Everyone just keeps calling me Oprah, so we're just gonna go with that. Yeah. Since none of you guys can get my name right. That's funny. Um, Orpa. So she was born, I'm going to say this wrong, I'm sorry to Mississippi, uh, in Kosciuszko? Girl, you're asking the wrong person. Kosciuszko. We're going to go with that. Kosciuszko. Mississippi to a single teen mother. Love it. After, I mean, really hard. I, mean, I don't know if you love it. <laughs> I mean, actually. Like, 
but sorry, those. But I mean, like, just because of her humble beginnings, I don't yes, know. Like, yes. I mean, yes, very hard, very trying. Sorry, so continue. it's okay. Inappropriate reaction after her birth, and I all I could find was that her mother moved her up north. But then they go on to talk about Wisconsin. So I'm assuming they moved her somewhere to Wisconsin. She, she moved was there a with head. with her mother. Well, it seems like she moved around a lot growing okay. up. She moved around a lot. So. They went to, I'm assuming, Wisconsin, and she spent the first six years of her life living in essentially, like, abject poverty with her grandparents. So her mom and her grandparents and her, like, lived together mm-hmm. and were so poor that Oprah very often wore potato sacks to school. Oh, my gosh, um, girl. Yes, and she got bullied pretty consistently. Of but her grandmother taught her how to read before the age of three <gasps> and would take her to church and she really began to develop a fondness for public speaking. She really does have a very, like, it, was she Baptist? Yes. So she has a very, like, Baptist preacher she way does. about her. Yeah, it's kind of that enigmatic energy. Very compelling. Yes, yeah. very compelling. So um, she was nicknamed the preacher because she would go in public as a very small child and recite Bible verses to the I people around it. her. Um <clears throat> Do you realize I always say I love it now, I too? love it. I love it. At the age of six, Oprah's mom moved them to Milwaukee, and she had another daughter who uh, she named Patricia. And I'm going to include some things that kind of jump ahead a little bit just mm-hmm. so we can really take in a lot of the tragedy that was, like, Oprah's young life. Got it. Um, so they had another daughter named Patricia, and she later died of cocaine addiction in 2003. Oh, wow. So her mother was unable to care for both girls. Uh-huh. Uh, she just couldn't manage it. So she sent Oprah to live with her biological father, who she barely knew, yeah. uh, Vernon Winfrey, back in Nashville, Tennessee. While she was in Nashville, her mother gave birth to a third daughter, who Oprah... Uh, Sorry, who she put up for adoption. Oprah did not know she had this sister until 2010. (gasps) The adoptive parents also named her Patricia. So she had two sisters named Patricia. Oh my gosh, did they like reconnect on the show? I don't know if they ever reconnect. I think they did reconnect, but um, she had no idea that she'd had another sister. She didn't know her mom had given birth to another child. Um, By the time Oprah moved back in with her mom, she had had another child. (gasps) A boy named Jeffrey. Did, did she keep Jeffrey? She did keep Jeffrey. Jeffrey died of AIDS-related causes in 1989. Oh, my gosh. So, it's a lot. Oprah. And it seems like her siblings led with, you know, outside of the one that was adopted. We don't really know what happened to yeah. that that girl. But um, her other biological siblings went down a very different really path suffered. than she did. Um, during her childhood, Oprah was the victim of sexual molestation at the hands of her cousin, her uncle, and a family friend starting mm. at the age of nine. She said that she finally brought up the abuse at the age of 24 to her family members, and her family members did not believe her. Yeah. So that was something that was really difficult that Devastating, she dealt with. Devastating, but not surprising. And she talked about that on her show. She was yeah. pretty open um, about that in the later seasons yeah. of Oprah. At the age of 13, after suffering years of abuse, Oprah ran away from home. Um, And at 14, she became pregnant, but her son was born prematurely and died shortly after birth. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so bleak, bleak times. It's like a Dickens novel. It really is, or like a really, like a lifetime. Yeah. Um, So Oprah moved back in with her mother and began attending high school at Lincoln High in Milwaukee, where she excelled in the school's Upward Bound program, which was a federally funded educational program that came out of the war on poverty that was happening at that time. And it 
was designed to allow low-income students a better chance at going to college. So she got into this gifted program and excelled so well that she was then transferred to an affluent suburban school, Nicolette High School, where she was, again, constantly bullied for being in poverty. I read a thing that said that a lot of the students, other students that had come from her neighborhood with her that were able to go to this school, some of them their parents were the housekeepers or servants of the kids they went to school with. Yeah. Because there was that, like, um, classism and power dynamic at that school. So to try and keep up with her classmates, she started stealing money from her mom to be able to pay for things to, you know... To kind of up her status. To try and, like, fit in. Um, Her mother, once again, got fed up with this and sent her to go live with her father again in Nashville. So her father was more encouraging of her academics, and she became an honor student. She was voted most popular girl in school. She joined her high school speech team, and she placed second in the nation for a dramatic interpretation that she did. Beautiful. So she began winning oratory contests and received a full scholarship to Tennessee State University, where she studied communication. And at 17, she even won the Black Tennessee Beauty Pageant and attracted the attention of a local black radio station, WVOL, who hired her to do the news part-time. So That's I, awesome. I also really love that it seems like the black community really did help her get her start. Like, they saw yeah. potential in her and n- nurtured that potential and, yeah. like, helped her But move I feel forward. like there is something about those communities in general where you come from, like, a lower class or poverty situation and in that time being black was definitely put you into that category Mm -hmm. i feel like they're typically very nurturing and like want each other to succeed yeah where i feel like there's so much like quote-unquote white history of like competitiveness right i I feel like other cultures were typically a little bit more like nurturing i think it's i think it's the positive side of what is often a very negative thing which is that the one represents the whole yeah so i think the positive side to that is when you're in a community where you feel like every other member of that community represents you you want them to do well because you feel like that's our girl. You yeah. know what I mean? That's our There's girl. There's a sense of pride right. in that instead of feeling a sense of competitiveness. Right, yeah. So um, after her time as the youngest anchor and first black female news anchor at Nashville's WLAC-TV, she packed her bags at the age of 22, and in 1976, she drove to Baltimore to be the co-anchor on a WJZ new, blah, 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 WJZ night newscast with Jerry Turner, who was basically like a local celebrity at this time. Mm-hmm. And he was the king of news in his area, and he yeah. hated Oprah. Uh, he didn't want to share the spotlight with her, dick. and he made things extremely extremely difficult for her and she talked about how she this persevered. was yeah and she talked about how it was a very dark time in her life yeah um after seven months she was essentially demoted like they didn't fire her but they basically were like we're going to um lateral it's it's, it's like you're moving up but you're not making any more, more money. money yeah and they had her reading like news segments between other segments so she wasn't a, a, an anchor anymore and she right. said herself that like that is not the kind of news that she is good at or enjoys yeah. delivering at all. So she was really miserable. And this is where she meets her best friend, Gail. Gail! Um, also, I think, at this job. And she faced a considerable amount of sexual harassment, as mm-hmm. did Gail, and gender um, discrimination. The higher-ups would often have her or Gail babysit their children, like... 
because there were women working there and they just made it part of their like duties. And she's like, this has nothing to do with my job. Um, yeah. So she went on to say that this is one of the most difficult and demoralizing times in her life, but in the end, it made her into what she is today. She says, I had no idea what I was in for or that this was going to be the greatest growing period of my adult life. It shook me to my very core, and I didn't even know at the time that I was being shaken. So she was knocked down, but she got right back up again. She was like, I'm going to just... It doesn't even seem like she was knocked down. It was like they tried to knock her down. But she was just kind of like, no, 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 this isn't right. Well, I think it was kind of one of those things where she had come from that comfort of being supported by this community. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I'm going to do it. She had faced all this discrimination up until this point. And finally, like, she's out on her own. And in her first big move, you know, her co-anchor hates her. She gets kind of demoted and she's facing a lot of trials all at once. Yeah. And I think a lot for a lot of us, it'd be easy to kind of like give up or yeah. kind of just be like, okay, well, this is the path that I'm I've been given, so I'm yeah. going to accept that. And she really didn't. Yeah. Um, in 1978, she began co-hosting a local talk show. People are talking with Richard Share with the same. I'm pretty sure with the same um, network. Network. So she stayed in that network long enough to make a good enough impression to start. Uh, co-hosting on this local talk show. And unlike Jerry Turner, Richard loved Oprah, and he saw her potential. And even though local critics kind of bashed the show, it went on to be a major hit, which led to her relocating to Chicago in 1983, where she hosted a half-hour morning talk show, AM Chicago, and she took it from last place ratings to overtaking the Donahue show as the highest-ranked talk show in Chicago. That's awesome. Movie critic Roger Ebert persuaded her to sign a syndication deal with King World, and they gave her the Oprah Winfrey show, which became a number one talk show in America. What year was that? That was in sometime sometime after 1983. I'm not sure exactly. So uh, Time Magazine wrote, Few people would have bet on Oprah Winfrey's swift rise to host the most popular talk show on TV. In a field dominated by white males, she is a black female of ample bulk. <laughs> Which is like, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, as interviewers go, she is no match for, say, Phil Donahue. What she lacks in journalistic toughness, she makes up for in outspoken, in plain-spoken curiosity, robust humor, and above all, empathy. Guests with sad stories to tell are apt to rouse a tear in Oprah's eye. They, in turn, often find themselves revealing things they would not imagine telling anyone, much less a national TV audience. Yeah. It is a talk show as... It is the talk show as a group therapy session. So, in addition to her talk show, she also produced and co-starred in the 1989 drama miniseries, The Woman of... The Women of Brewster Place, which was a short-lived spin-off of Brewster Place, as well as hosting and appearing on television shows. Winfrey co-founded the Women's Cable, cable Television Network, Oxygen. She mm-hmm. also was the president of Harpo Productions, which is, of course, Oprah spelled backwards. Yeah. So Harpo Productions had a film division that produced a ton of movies, which I think stopped producing movies in... Uh, so it was started in 1993, and it shut down in 2013, but the cr- scripted series division continues on to this mm-hmm. day. On January 15th, 2008, Winfrey and the Discovery Communications announced their change to the Discovery Health Channel into a new channel called OWN, Oprah Winfrey Network. It was scheduled to launch in 2009, but was delayed and actually launched January 1st, 2011. The series finale, finale of the Oprah Winfrey Show aired May 25th, 2011. 
In January 2017, CBS announced that Oprah, that Winfrey would be, that Oprah would join 60 Minutes as a special con- contributor on the Sunday evening news magazine program starting in September 2017. The National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2018 opened a special exhibit on Winfrey's cultural influence through television. So in addition to all of this, which is also a crazy amount of things already, um, she starred in and produced a shit ton of movies. Of amazing movies. Of amazing, amazing movies, TV shows. She was in The Color Purple, yeah. where I think she was nominated for an Academy Award, yeah. I believe, uh, for being in The Color Purple. She was in Beloved, which she also um, produced. She has produced movies like... Produced and been in movies like The Butler and Selma. Um, she's co-authored five books and publishes O, the Oprah magazine. She also had a magazine from 2004 to 2008 called O at Home, which was yeah. a, a home magazine. Um, she is believed to be the richest African-American of the 20th century. And she was the world's only black billionaire from 2004 to 2006, according to the Forbes list. Wow. So... In addition to all, all of, of the this, amazing things, all of this, and also I want to touch very kind of briefly on um, her influence when it comes to. So there's this thing called the Oprah effect, which is basically like anything that Oprah endorses immediately becomes popular. That's why yeah. there's she releases her favorite things episodes every year yeah. because you see a boost in sales for those products. Right. Um, Oprah, mention us. <laughs> because, yeah, seriously. Because everybody trusts Oprah. They yeah. trust her. And she kind of crosses racial lines. Yeah. She crosses socioeconomic lines. Um, so when she kind of came out, especially with her support of Ellen DeGeneres um, and other LGBTQ members of society, when she kind of like came out in support of those things, it was a really big deal. Yeah, other people started coming out in support of them as right, well. Right, and kind of being a lot more accepting of those things. And she yeah. has been very accepting and open about those things on her show. I That's the thing that I love is like the parallels between Ellen and Oprah. Obviously very different like backgrounds and situations, but I, I love that both of them have kind of um, been pushed down. By their business right. and both kind of persevered so much. And Ellen, I mean, Oprah really gave Ellen like a, a big step up in yeah, the beginning. She did. I mean, she Ellen is so appreciative of Oprah. Yeah, that's some real sister solidarity. Yeah. And I love she has this quote, Oprah, about, um, you know, a lot of people think that her friendship with Gail is unusual, especially since she's never married Stedman, which is a highly like sexist comment. Right. That because like she's not married, she must be secretly gay. And um, she's had. She's had this quote where she was basically like, I understand why people might think that there aren't a lot of really good positive examples of female friendship being like genuine female friendship. Um, But who would look at me and think that if I was gay, I wouldn't come out and say it yeah you know what i mean she's like i I definitely would because she doesn't think anything's wrong with it so why wouldn't she exactly so let's talk a little bit about her politics Oh, she loved Obama. She loved Obama. She went out and uh, supported Obama. There was this thing, Matthew Baum and Angela Jameson performed an experiment testing their uh, hypothesis that politically unaware individuals who consume soft news will be more likely to vote consistently than their counterparts who do not consume soft news. So I'm guessing in this instance, they're 
considering the Oprah show and things like that, where they convey information to yeah. be, like, soft news. Like, we would be kind of, like, soft, soft news. news. You know, not hard-hitting journalism. In their studies, they found that low-awareness individuals who watch soft news shows, such as the Oprah Winfrey show, are 14% more likely to vote consistently than low-awareness individuals who only watch hard news. Ah. So you can imagine that it was a very big deal and probably very scary for people on the other side uh, or on the right. That Oprah was endorsing Obama so When much. she came out and endorsed publicly p- presidential candidate Barack Obama in the 2008 presidential election. It was the first time she'd ever endorsed a political candidate for office. Yeah. I'm guessing because of the Oprah effect, she understands that her words have a lot of meaning, um, a lot a of, of meaning and effect. So she wanted to reserve that for something she really believed in, and she did with the Obamas. And in fact, she's good friends with Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I'm so jealous. I know. I would love to be in that room. Actually, I would feel very scared. I would just be in a corner like, hi. I mean nothing. I, I love all of you. Okay, I'm bye. Sorry, bye. I'm not worthy of being in this room. <laughs> you know, in the movie Hercules where... Um, we're worms! We're worms! That's how I would feel, absolutely. Um... So uh, they believe that it was actually Winfrey's endorsement that was responsible for the difference in the popular vote between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, because it was so close. Um, you, you liking that uh, that cranberry there? They're all cranberries at the bottom, <laughs> and they all came spilling into my mouth. That's oh, God, funny. they're strong. All right. Um. And there was a whole thing earlier this year whenever Oprah gave a really incredible, phenomenal speech at the Oscars. I think it was the beginning of this year uh, where there was a whole campaign of Oprah 2020 where people were like, yeah. we want Oprah to be our president. Yeah. And she has come out and said publicly that she has no desire to run for yeah. political office. Which she's had a long, big life. And I know? fucking get it. Listen, you're Oprah. Enjoy being Oprah. People yeah. like you. The yeah. second you run for office, you're going to lose that. Donald yeah. Trump figured that out. Listen. <laughs> Don't do it. Listen. Um, so, in 2004, Winfrey became the first black person to rank among the 50 most generous Americans, and she remained among the top 50 until 2010. By 2012, she had given away $400 million to educational causes. In 2012, she had also given over 400 scholarships to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, and Winfrey was the recipient of the first Bob Hope Humanitarian Award at the 2002 Emmy Awards for services to television and film. Um, she also donated $12 million to the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, and Pre- President Barack Obama awarded her the President Medal of Freedom later that same year. You better, Barack. I mean, right? She did you a real solid. She did you a solid. She also had, um, she created the Oprah's Angel Network in 1998, which was a charity that supported charitable projects and provided grants to nonprofit organizations around the world. Oprah's Angel Network raised more than 80 million dollars. Wow. And Winfrey personally covered all administrative costs associated with the charity. So 100% of that money, 100% of that $80 million um, went to charity programs. Wow. Yes. So um, in May of 2010, when the Oprah Winfrey show shut down, that charity stopped accepting donations and was shut down. But it did a lot of good work from 1998 to 2010. Yeah. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina... 
Um, she actually created the Oprah Angel Network Katrina Registry that raised more than $11 million for relief efforts, and she personally gave $10 million to the cause. Wow. So, of her own money. Damn. Yes. She also opened a school in South Africa after she went there and kind of saw the way that poverty and AIDS had affected uh, the people there, and particularly the children yeah. in South Africa. So, she opened up... She invested $40 million and some of her time establishing the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls in Henley-on-Clip, south of Johannesburg in South Africa. That's amazing. Yeah. So some people have criticized the school. I mean, I know that there were scandals outside of this that I'm not really going to go into because they really actually don't have that much to do with Oprah herself. Yeah. Um, But there were some scandals that happened at that school. But I also know that people were somewhat critical of how luxurious they deemed the school to be. Yeah. Uh, which I can understand. I do think, again, I think Oprah is amazing. I think she gives to incredible charities. But I do think whenever you are as rich as Oprah is, for as long as she has been rich, um, you can sometimes, like, lose touch with what is, like, yeah. normal. Yeah. So you might be like, I'm giving these kids a normal life. And middle America's like, excuse me. <laughs> Pardon? Excuse me, what? Um, so... Winfrey kind of rejected the claims, though, and she said, If you are surrounded by beautiful things and wonderful teachers who inspire you, that beauty brings out the beauty in you. Agreed. So she has no surviving biological children. She has said publicly that she did not really want to be a mother because she was not mothered well. And um, I think she saw the effects of that on her. And she's really... I respect that. I, I respect that. And she's kind of... She says that she thinks of these children... As kind of like being her children, I feel like you know. She's almost just she mothered everyone who came on That's that right. show and everybody who watched her show with her empathy. Yeah, you know that's something that a lot of people don't have from their parents in their lives, and witnessing something like that can really be valuable. You know? I think Oprah is such an incredible example of someone who is. I think very often we see businesswomen or trailblazers as these kind of, and not to throw her under the bus because she's done plenty of amazing things as well, um, they're kind of like Hillary Clinton. You see them as kind of ice queens, right? Yeah. Who are like business, 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 all the time business. And Oprah Winfrey did a really good job of being this kind of mother figure, a very empathetic figure. And being very openly emotional. Very, very openly emotional while... And and always feeling genuine and never feeling, like, yeah, false or pushed. but gaining so much respect through that. And gaining a lot of respect through that, that not making her look weak. And yeah. also being very, very open about what she wants and needs. She never married Stedman. She yeah. was, you know, despite what I'm sure was a lot of pressure to do that. Yeah. And adhere to those kinds of, like, normal societal norms. Yeah. She never married Stedman. She never had children. Are they still together? Yeah, I think That's so. That's what I thought. She always put her career first, and yeah. no one ever really chastised her for that. And that's an amazing thing. She's very unique in that way. Yeah, she's very unique in that way, and I think it's so much of it has to do with the fact that she does cross those boundaries for everyone. Like, yeah. everyone just loves Oprah, you yeah. know? Yeah, I And agree. so I, re- I respect the hell out of her for that, like, that she's able to do that, so. And I think at one point she did come out and say she was a feminist. I think she said, like, she said, I never did consider or call myself a feminist, but I don't think you can really be a woman in this world and not be. Agreed. And I think that that is 
that makes so much sense for a woman who grew up in the time that Oprah she grew up in. Oprah endorsed feminism, guys. Yeah. Come it's on. Oprah approved. Oprah effect. Kick in. <laughs> Kick in, everybody. But I think that that makes so much sense because there's it another does. woman who I will eventually talk about as well who I think is just badass, who doesn't get enough credit, and that's Judge Judy. And we, My mom and I were just amazing. talking about her because we drove by her studio. She's super amazing. Yeah. And um, she kind of said something sim. Well, she didn't say something similar. She said that she did not consider herself a feminist, despite all of her actions being otherwise. And I think so much of that is just the time that you are coming out of. Yeah, exactly. Where feminism kind of meant something different. So I like that Oprah was able to say, you know what? Now that I think about it, I definitely I think I am a feminist. Definitely. Now that I really understand what it means. Definitely. Um. So yeah, there is Oprah Winfrey. <gasps> Yay! I missed these episodes. Yeah, they're fun. I love them so much. Good times. All right, you guys. We pretty much just hit an hour right on the nose, which is amazing. So uh, our anniversary episode is coming up soon. Please have all of your Ask Me Anything questions in by January 14th. You can shoot us an email at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can DM us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter if you want. It's at Yamf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, our business page, or you can go into our group page. Um, you can also leave a review on Facebook, but you can also leave a review and rate on Apple Podcasts. That would be greatly appreciated. Yes. And I Happy always, New Year's Eve. Have I a safe like New Year's Eve. More. Yeah. That. Have a safe New Year's Eve, you guys. Have fun tonight. Be really safe. Yes. Um, don't drink and drive. I was just going to say, Call if you an have Uber. a couple drinks, just take an Uber. It's probably going to be more expensive. It's going to be really busy, but your life is worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. be with your loved ones. Be happy. All right, you guys. With all that being said, we encourage you to, to rage on. on. Bye. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my two wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I'm hoping to open up the conversation about balancing careers and family. The one thing I constantly hear successful people say, without fail, is that they wish they'd spent more time with their kids. That's time no one can get back. So I decided to create Business Dad to engage in the conversation about how we're spending our time now, providing a forum for successful dads to share their joys and challenges of being a working parent. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier. And while this podcast will talk about business and will definitely be featuring dads, I think everyone can learn something from these incredible conversations as we unpack the expectations we all have about careers, relationships, and ourselves. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.